Hey coach, this is Dan Tudor. Glad you're listening today. If you ever wanted to sit down with somebody that had decades of experience in college athletics from the athletic director and coach standpoint and just ask them questions about how you should do your job and how they built such a great program, well, today is that day. We're going to talk with an individual who just retired and now is opening up about what made him and his program so successful. It's time for today's episode of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast with your host, author, speaker, and America's college recruiting guru, Dan Tudor. Coach, hope you're doing great today. Welcome to the podcast. And boy, we really have a special one today. It is so rare when somebody with decades of experience, and not only just experience in college athletics, but continued success in college athletics, that is willing to sit down and open up about what made them successful, the mistakes that they made, and really how they set the foundation to developing a really fantastic uh, program from start to finish and, and really build on that and have it become one of those institutions that everybody looks to and says, if we could ever get to be like that, then we're going to be doing some, some really exciting things. And that is the case with our guest today, Tim Selgo. Uh, many of you are familiar with him. He is the longtime athletic director at Grand Valley State University in Michigan, one of the premier, if not the premier, athletic Division II institution in the country. And before that, he was a very successful coach and, and really just has built a career from start to finish that most athletic directors and all coaches would envy. And he recently retired and and decided to write down everything that he knew and everything that went into developing consistently successful programs at Grand Valley State. His book is called Anchors Up, and it is all about the way that Grand Valley State University developed and executed year after year after year a, a nearly flawless plan for quality, for success, and, and really something that, that everybody in the community, all of their followers, could be proud of. And it wasn't easy, and it took a long time, but he really sort of peels back the layers and talks about what coaches need to do and what young athletic directors need to do if they want to build a great program. With the release of his, of his book, I think it's perfect timing because here we are heading into the summer, and coaches are always looking for things to read that will make them better at what they do. Well, I can, having read most of his book, uh, I can tell you that it is a fantastic resource, some really funny, great stories that are going to come with being in college athletics that long, but at the core, some really great advice and, and examples of how they they really set out to set their program apart from everybody else and what he as a leader did on a daily basis to make sure that that happened. And the thing that I love about the book, and you're going to hear this in the in the interview that we're about to get into with him. That Tim Selgo really opens up and not only tells you, here's what we did, but then gives you practical lessons and advice on how to implement it in your own program. And that's what I think is so great about this book, Anchor Up, uh, that's just been released. And I think there's just lots and lots of practical applications for coaches. Um, of course, you can look it up and, and find it on uh, on any of your bookseller websites that you tend to go to or, or like going to. We're going to also put a link to the book uh, here in the notes section of this podcast. You can access it from there. Really recommend it. So Tim Selgo agreed to sit down with us and spend some time. And as you're going to hear, he just the great thing about him is that you ask him a question and he'll just go and go and go and he'll just not hold anything back. And I think that's one of the benefits now that he has of being retired and now he can share the way that they really built a successful program because he doesn't have to compete with anybody else that's listening at this point. So we're going to dive right into the interview. And we started by asking a very simple question of Tim Selgo. How did you do it at Grand Valley State University? Well, thanks, Dan. Uh, uh, I'm would very much like to share with you uh, some of my thoughts on how we built a successful athletics program at Grand Valley State University. Um, and uh, I have a, a book, Anchor Up, Competitive Greatness, The Grand Valley Way, uh, that is on the market now. And in there I share what I refer to as my five leadership steps 
uh, in building a program. And it isn't only a college athletics program. Uh, it's a building an organization anywhere, in any walk of life. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly my walk of life, life was college athletics, but I think this is pertinent for uh, anybody in the business world, anybody that's uh, high school athletics, any leadership position that is out there. I, I think I have uh, five steps that can help someone build a program. And I think there's a, a couple of fundamentals that are important to them all. Uh, one of them is you have to be committed uh, to building a program, and that takes time. And so before I even get into my five leadership steps, I would like to share with people that I think one of the reasons why it was made successful at Grand Valley uh, is because when my wife and I moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan uh, in 1996, when I became the athletics director at Grand Valley mm -hmm. State University, uh, I told her, uh, Terry, this is it. We're going to go here and build a program. This is where we're going to raise our family, and we need to make a commitment. So throughout it all, I was thinking long term, how to build a right. program, how to sustain a program. And I'm very, very fortunate. I was very fortunate. We had great leadership during my time at Grand Valley from the university's end of things. And I'm very fortunate. We had so many great people to work with. Uh, and as I say to a lot of people, I was the right guy at the right place at the right time. Uh, but specifically in building a program, I think step one starts with establishing a vision. What is it that you want to accomplish? Uh, again, re whatever program you have, whatever uh, endeavor in life you're in, it starts with a vision. Okay, what do we want to accomplish here? What was our vision? Our vision for Grand Valley State University was uh, uh, I wanted to establish what I refer to as our three fundamentals for success. And our three fundamentals for success at Grand Valley were one, create the best learning environment possible. Uh, college athletics is a part of higher education. And it right. means uh, they come to your school to learn. It's incumbent upon us, all of us in the athletics department, coaches, staff, to teach. Our job is to teach. Our job is to create that learning environment so those kids can get their degree from Grand Valley, become the best athlete they possibly can be, and then prepare them to be the best citizen they can be for the real world. And, our, and, and so it's creating that learning environment in college athletics was the, was the first step for us, uh, first part of our vision. The second fundamental for success for Grand Valley State Athletics was challenging our teams to competitive greatness. And we use John Wooden's definition of competitive greatness, coming through with your best effort and best performance when it is most needed. That doesn't say anything about winning championships, uh, banners on the wall, All-American. Right. It says we're trying to help these kids achieve to the very best of their ability. It's our job as staff and coaches to recruit the best and most talented student athletes we possibly can. And then once they're there, it's up to us to teach them to be the best competitors they can possibly be. You know, the world is competitive. These kids are going to go out and they're going to become teachers. They're going to work in healthcare. They're going to work in business. And the world and their employers are going to expect them to bring their best effort and best performance every day. And it's our job at the collegiate athletics level to create that environment and then teach them to bring that best effort, best performance every day, to teach them competitive greatness. And then the third fundamental for success that we had, Dan, uh, and, and the vision that I wanted and what I wanted out of my people was to commit the energy necessary for success. Uh, it just doesn't happen without people bringing the energy. When you work on a uh, uh, college campus, you're dealing with 18 and 22 year olds. And as the leader, as the athletics director, as the coach, as the assistant AD, uh, anybody on that staff, it's incumbent upon us to bring the energy every day. We had to be passionate. We had to bring energy every day because we're dealing with 18 to 22 year olds. Conversely, if you're a dud, guess what? They're all gonna be duds. And so it was up to us to commit that energy necessary for success every day. That was the vision that I laid out. You know. Uh, our goal every year as an athletics department was to win the President's Cup. The President's Cup in our conference is the all-sports trophy. And I think that should be an annual goal for anybody in college athletics. You want to be the best in your conference. And for us, 
we wanted to be the best uh, we possibly could in every sport, not just one or two, not just football and the revenue sports. We wanted to be the best we could in every sport. And we had 20 of them at Grand Valley. So that's a tough job. But that was the vision uh, that we created for our athletics department. Right. And those are three fundamentals of success. That was step one in our leadership steps. Okay. So there's a lot in there. Let's, uh, as yep. they say, let's let's unpack that a little bit uh, because you, I, <laughs> we could probably talk, or I could anyway, for the next hour just on what you said in those in that five minute uh, introductory answer to the, my first question. So let let me let me kind of take it piece by piece uh, and put it in some context too that you did this at a Division two school, which I think I mean just from a recruiting standpoint, Division two is generally I think the toughest division level to recruit to because you're not Division one, you're not the you know the uh, the the big name sizzle of that conference or or you know the Division one brand, and you're not Division three, so you're not the the more specialized, really highly academic uh, specialty school. You're somewhere in between that. It's sometimes hard for people to define Division two. So my question back to you, because we work with and talk to a lot of Division two coaches on a regular basis, was there any specific challenge or hurdle that you saw being at a Division two school that made that vision and, and having it come to reality a little bit harder or more difficult? Or did you really just ignore the division level label? Well, for the most part, I ignored it. Now, I came from Division One. I. I had been mm-hmm. at the University of Toledo as a student athlete in men's basketball at the University of Toledo. Um, and, and I played for the winningest coach in the history of the Mid-American Conference to this day, a gentleman by the name of Bob Nichols. Uh, he retired mm-hmm. in 1986. He still has the most wins in men's basketball in that conference. So I was, I was very fortunate there that I had a great teacher and a great coach and Coach Nichols uh, leading me and, and our teams. So I, 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 and my father was a great high school teacher and coach. Uh, another one of my great mentors. So I had a great background in how to be successful in college athletics. So right, you I had the role think, models. Yeah, no question. I had great mentors and great role models, Dan. But I, I didn't feel there was that much difference. Uh, you're correct. And, you know, in Division Two, people always ask me all the time, what's Division Two like? Well, we're a little bit like Division One. We're a little bit like Division Three. Um, I think our student-athletes, it's a high level of competition, and yet there is a little bit more balance between their academics and athletics. Or very, very few are going on to have a career in professional sports. So, uh, and, and Tim, I, let, me, let me jump in real quick, and I should have phrased my question maybe a little bit differently because I, I say all that. I hear sort of, well, we're just Division Two, or I don't have the budget that a Division One coach would have or Division One athletic director would have from current Division Two. Uh, coaches and athletic directors. Sure. So it almost is that that is the crutch that a lot of Division two coaches, or we'll just say anybody that's not a BCS conference school, is going to say, well, here's why I can't do it. And I just, from what you said in that opening uh, uh, answer to my question, I didn't hear a lot of, well, here's what we can't do at, at Grand Valley State. Well, we, we, that, that's not my approach. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I was, again, I was very fortunate. You know, when I got to Grand Valley State, everybody described it as a sleeping giant. And I said, all right, well, let's wake the dang thing up, and then we got to go to work <laughs> and figure it out. One of the more the unique things about Division Two is that we're dealing with partial scholarships. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. The general public doesn't. Right, right. Is that we have generally uh, one half to maybe two-thirds the volume of scholarship, athletic scholarship money that the folks in Division One have. Uh, so whereas in, in basketball in Division One, the men's basketball, they have 13 full scholarships, we have 10. That's that's about two-thirds of the way there. In football in Division One, the Power Five schools have 85 scholarships, we have 36. Uh, now, the, not, the Olympic sports in Division One understand this. So even my time at Toledo with Olympic sports, you're dealing with equivalencies. So you've got X number of scholarships you're allowed by NCAA rule, 
and you can divide them up amongst everybody on your roster if you want. So uh, we just have fewer scholarships. In Division One. I, I think baseball has about 14. In Division Two, we have eight. So uh, that, that's the sort of difference between Division One and Division Two. But when I got to Grand Valley, Dan, one of the things that I noticed, the biggest problem we had, is we weren't offering very much scholarship money at all to any of our sports mm-hmm. other than football, men's and women's basketball, and volleyball. Those schools were funded at, at the maximum level of Division Two. which again, let's use football for an example. Football is at 36, so we were, we were at the full amount. So when I got here, our head coach uh, was Brian Kelly, now the head coach at Notre Dame. Yeah, I've heard of him. And, uh, yeah, and one of the things about Division Two that Brian Kelly had figured out, and thankfully, uh, as has Chuck Martin and Matt Mitchell, uh, our two co- head coaches that have followed him and both as, have been uh, as successful, if not more successful, than Brian during his time at Grand Valley, uh, is that uh, that Division II scholarships, you're basically dealing with a salary cap. So in football, you have 36 full rides to divide amongst 90 guys, 90 to 100 right. guys. And, you know, you're, you're, you're going to give more scholarship money to the, the skill positions, the quarterback, the running backs, the wide receivers, than you are to the linemen. And your job as a recruiter at the collegiate level, which is job one, is to get the best player you can for as little as money as you can. And uh, that's hard to do when you're recruiting against Division I. Uh, no question about it. If they're offering a full ride, you know, and you may be able, be able to only offer a third or a half a scholarship to a student right. athlete. So how do you get those guys? How do you get those ladies that are being uh, wooed by Division I? You've got to get creative. You've got to figure out ways to make it work. You've got to talk about the value of a Grand Valley education, even though they might have to pay some money for their uh, education, uh, think of the value they're gonna get for the next 40 years after graduation, because that's what it's all about. And furthermore, in Division Two, you think about the value of the experience as a student athlete. I mean, we talked all the time that, you know, we love Division Two. it's life in the balance. You're gonna compete at the national level in Division Two athletics, and yet you have a balance there. You're going to be a student first. And, you know, we're going to arrange our travel schedules around your class schedule. We're going to arrange our practice times as best we can around your pra- pra- uh, class schedules and those kinds of things. So it, it's, you turn it, you got to turn everything into an advantage for you. Uh, and one specific advantage that I'll mention that we use to a great extent at Grand Valley uh, when we were recruiting against Division One student athletes or, or, or re- prospects that we're looking at, Division one, and they were usually lower level division one, lower to mm-hmm. mid level, right? Sure. Uh, we offered them the chance to play two sports. There were a lot of those kids that wanted to play two sports, and uh, division one schools uh, didn't want them to. Uh, felt they couldn't and compete successfully at that level. We said, "Hey, we we welcome it." I could I could go on for ten minutes here of the student athletes we've had that have helped us compete nationally at Grand Valley that played more than one sport. So that was an advantage we had. And uh, we could offer them that, that possibility. So that was part of our uh, uh, vision, I guess you say. When sure, I came into sure. Grand Valley, uh, we needed to build up our scholarship support in all of our other uh, 20 sports besides the ones that get the most attention. Swimming and diving, track and field, baseball, softball, soccer, and, and so on. And I felt, Dan, if we could just get a little bit more athletic scholarship in those other sports, we would do very well because we have a phenomenal school. Grand Valley State is a tremendous school academically. Uh, like I said, in the last 20 years, we've, we've become in, in the top three in Michigan in academic profile, academic standards, graduation rates. And uh, so I was the right guy at the right place right. at the right time. But, but the, the vision is key. You've got to set the vision for everybody working in your, in your program. Well, and you know, if anyone doubts your statement uh, earlier that you, you know, told your wife, your wife, hey, we're all in. You know, we're gonna, this, is, this is home. We're going to build a great program. I think they probably are hearing by now that you, I mean, it's not only coming up with a, a pitch or a spiel to, to give to somebody about your school, in this case, Grand Valley State, but you have to, like you said, you have to have, have the vision and believe in it and embrace it. And it's, you know, obviously it's clear that you, 
you did that uh, and you you didn't use the division two label as an excuse of saying well we can't do things as well as or even better in many cases than a division one uh, a division one program I, I'm curious though when you got there and you began to build and execute this vision uh, because we have a lot of coaches listening right now that uh, that are actively seeking how do I get better and what are the things that I need to do to improve my career and, and just become a better coach recruiter organizer leader what were some of the things and obviously I don't want names but what were some of the things that coaches did or that you've seen over your years as an athletic director at a high level at a successful school what are the things that coaches did that were wrong or that you could see them maybe doing things incorrectly or or just you know in a sloppy way that you knew was going to result in in them struggling uh, and I, I would just love some of your observations there because I think coaches would really love to learn from that to make sure they're not making those mistakes. Sure. Well, one of them um, were my um, the expectations that I had um, mm-hmm. and, and, and some of the folks when I arrived, uh, we had to raise the expectations. And again, I'm not talking about results. I'm not talking about wins and losses and championships. Those come. I'm talking about the process and the hard work that goes into this. Uh, you know, co- college athletics is as competitive as anything out there. I firmly believe that. You know, I, 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 I listen to business people talk about how competitive it, competitive it is in the business world, but I would challenge you to find me a business that has uh, 12 to 14 other high-level competitors uh, that they go against day in and day out. Let's use right. the, pe- the pizza industry, for example. I mean, we can name five or six major pizza chains, maybe, okay? And we can name a few local or regional pizza chains, but they, the pizza business is highly competitive. We all know that. But they don't even have 10 others in their region to go, that they go against. In, in any conference in the country in college athletics, you got 12 to 14, Okay, and I'm, I'm not getting to the national scene where it's highly competitive. So it's highly competitive. So when I got to Grand Valley, we had to ratchet that up a little bit, our own competitiveness as a process. You know, I talk about committing the energy necessary for success. Hey, this is a lot of hard work. Recruiting is a lot of hard work. Making that extra chip, getting in that car and going to see that kid play one more time just to be sure. Uh, 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 you know, uh, taking a chance on uh, a phone call, you, you know, of the 14 uh, emails and phone calls you've gotten today from some coach somewhere that has the right prospect for you. Hey, this is hard work, and you've got to be re- right. ready to make that commitment because you never know what it'll turn into. I'm going to give you one story, Dan, that yeah. I think uh, exemplifies this. I was uh, the head women's basketball coach at the University of Toledo. And this is a story that kind of helped make me take the next step into administration because it is Mother's Day in Toledo, Ohio. Our daughters at that time were ages four and two, if I recall, or maybe three and one. So this is 30 years ago now. And I was the head women's basketball coach at Toledo. We didn't have much talent in the program. And there was an AU tournament in Schoolcraft, Michigan at Schoolcraft Community College. So it's Mother's Day, or Mother's Day weekend. Mm-hmm. It's a Saturday, a Mother's Day weekend. And I'm out pushing my girls on the swing in the early morning. It's beautiful. The trees are blast. And there, and I had to go, sorry, girls, Daddy has to go now. And they said, where are you going, Daddy? Where are you going? I said, oh, I've got to go spend the entire day in the gym watching uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, girls AU basketball, okay? And I pulled out of the parking lot, and I thought to myself, I'm not sure how much longer I want to do this because I had an eye on going into administration. And I spent the entire day at Schoolcraft Community College, a beautiful day. And late in the day, I'm watching this team play, and I see this skinny little sophomore, junior-to-be, named Jane Roman. And she was tiny, okay? And she's handling the ball, and she's taking the ball to the hoop against this pretty good team with bigger, stronger kids, perhaps older kids. And I remember marking down, man, I got to keep an eye on this kid. I got to get up there to see this kid play next fall. And sure enough, she's from Sterling Heights, Michigan. I went up to watch her team play. I was the first coach to go see her play. 
and everything about her I liked. And as time went, of course, she got a little bigger and she got a little better and started to attract a little more attention. And I recruited mm -hmm. her hard. Did not get her on the first go around. She signed with Rice. And I'm at Toledo. And uh, uh, fast forward to the following year, I get named the Associate Athletic Director at Toledo. So I'm getting my chance at administration. And our high school coach contacts me and said, Jane has a release. She wants to transfer, and she'd really like to transfer uh, to Toledo. And I explained the situation. I said, hang on. We're going to get a great coach in here. And we ended up hiring Bill Fennelly, that coach uh, now at Iowa State. Bill right. followed me at Toledo, did a great job as now at Iowa State. And uh, Bill came in, I said, listen, it's your program now, you can do what you want, but I'm telling you, there's this kid from Sterling Heights that went to Rice, uh, she wants to transfer, uh, I highly recommend her. It's your decision, but I highly recommend her. And Bill said, well, yeah, I appreciate that. And he, he called a buddy of his that was an assistant in Houston and uh, comes back and says, uh, I called my buddy up, first thing out of his mouth, take her. So. Uh, he took Jane Roman. Jane's in the Hall of Fame at Toledo right now. And uh, my point being is, that's those are the little things you got to do. I mean, I sat right. there all day and on a hard bleacher. And I know <laughs> coaches everywhere are doing that. But that's when I came to Grand Valley, that was my vision for what I wanted our staff to do. Hey, we're going to work hard. Everybody works hard now, okay? But the commitment. And you have to believe in what you're doing. I think you use that word, Dan. That's key. Mm -hmm. So that's why establishing the vision is so important. Because everybody uh, under your command has to buy into that vision. And right. which leads me to the step two of my leadership uh, steps. You have to align your vision with that of your company or organization. In my uh, case, it was we had to align that vision that I talked about, our fundamentals for success, the vision of winning a President's Cup with that of the Grand Valley State University. And at that time, Grand Valley was in transition from being a commuter school to a residential campus. We had to buy into that, which we loved, of course, in athletics. We had sure. more students on campus, more student life. We loved that. The other thing Grand Valley was headed towards is they were ratcheting up their academic standards and uh, they're much higher today than they were in 1996, and we had to buy into that. That was part of it. Grand Valley was 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 uh, increasing their academic profile, and we that was and athletics had to align itself with that. And I'm very proud to say we certainly did that. We graduated student athletes at a higher rate uh, than the student body uh, during my 20 years there. And and uh, uh, again. That takes a lot of hard work, but but it's setting right. that vision and getting everybody to believe in that vision. And honestly, you need to have a little success to get to get total buy-in. And fortunately for us, after about three or four years, we started having some success. The process was working, and everybody bought in. Right, right. I want to I want to start diving into the book a little bit, which is uh, you mentioned it's called Anchor Up, and it's it's basically all of the leadership lessons and and you know from your years at Grand Valley State University, and the reason I think you know, this is a great book for coaches because they are they always crave uh, to read examples and, and ideas on leadership. And here's you know this is a book not from a business leader that they are trying to apply to their coaching career or athletic career. This is from somebody that's walked in their shoes as a coach, as an AD, and and obviously with a, a proven track record. So. I want to spend a little bit of time talking to you, and, and for a coach that's listening, this is out now. You can go to Amazon or wherever uh, you buy books and, uh, and, and buy it, Anchor Up from, by Tim Selgo. I, I want to jump to a couple of different things that I thought were interesting in, in reading uh, the, the copy of the book that you sent me. Um, I want to talk about facilities because... And, and maybe take a little slightly different twist that you did in the book because you run down sort of the the different things that were going on behind the scenes as you improved the facilities at Grand Valley State, and then you mm -hmm. end with some lessons that, uh, that it have to do with, with what you learned in, in all of the efforts that you were involved with regarding facilities. And, and let me just throw something out at you and see if, if this ties in with the book at all, because I hear from coaches all the time that if I just had a bigger this or a newer that or our, our locker room, our field, our turf isn't as good as this school, this school, this school, and that's why I can't be successful. 
can uh, and I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure you heard you know a variety of those types of conversations or uh, that where coaches would walk into your office and and say that I, I can you just sort of speak to facilities and the role they play in a program success but but also I mean I, I would view it as a again one of those crutches that I see some coaches using as to well here's why I can't be as good as possible because yeah. our facility only seats this or it's x number of years old and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that uh, you know as you as you maybe talk to coaches on that point Sure. Well, first of all, I, I do have to explain the phrase anchor up the title of my book mm-hmm. uh, at Grand Valley. You know, at, at Alabama, they say roll tide at Michigan. They say right. go blue at Grand Valley. We say anchor up because the, we're the Lakers and the Lakers right. uh, were the captains of ships on the Great Lakes. And yep. uh, when it's time to sail, when it's time to get going, you pull that anchor up. So our whole uh, message and theme was get that anchor up. Let's go. It's time to go and sail. So uh, with regards specifically to facilities, Dan, you're absolutely right. Um, now, there's no question facilities are important in college athletics recruiting. They are important. And there's no question that it's a never-ending battle. Somebody's always going to build something bigger and better, and we're all going to start chasing that. Uh, that that's that was my 35 years of experience in college athletics. Uh, but here's the view I had of facilities. Um, when I got to Grand Valley, we had good facilities. And uh, uh, facilities, I think, sometimes, uh, instead, not, they may not necessarily get a recruit to say, yes, I'm coming. But they can at least for sure get them to make sure... Uh, they're not saying no. Your facilities right. are so bad. I'm not coming. Absolutely agree. You know, I, I, uh, I, I, just to jump in too, Tim, that I've, I've, I think that's an important point for coaches that it I, facilities will seldom be the reason they come to your school, but it will often be the reason they don't come. So I'm, I'm in agreement that uh, that you know facilities are important, um, but I think also I mean maybe you can talk about this at some point too that facilities and how you feel about them and what a recruit or your team hears you say about them I a lot of time it, it maps out the opinion that they have of your facility so you could have a, be a, a very mediocre facility but if a coach is enthusiastic about it and talking positively then usually the recruiter the team will say okay well then that's how we should think about it and so and I just want to jump in with with that there's no question that the leader casts a wide umbrella and if that leader is positive and is looking at their facility and figuring out a way uh, that we're going to be successful, everybody under that leader's umbrella, including his or her players, are going to take that same approach. Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, uh, meet with a coach that has that uh, belief and philosophy at Cal State Monterey Bay. Walt White is the head baseball coach there, and he's nothing but positive. And he's got some limitations, but you would never know it when you talk to Walt and then when I talked to his assistant coach, you would never know it because that assistant coach is following the lead of his his head coach. It's nothing but positive. We're going to make this. They have a, a nice facility. It's not extravagant. It's a nice facility. Uh, they don't have great scholarships, but not bad. But they're making it a positive. Everything's a positive because they have so many other positives at their school. So I wanted to give that shout out to, to a coach that I think is doing a great job of what you described. But there's no question, I think as an athletics director, as the leader, you've got to take a look at all that. And it's part of your vision, part of your plan. I always felt, Dan, that in looking at facilities, yes, Uh, You have to look at them from a recruiting standpoint, but more importantly is what kind of facilities are we providing for our student-athletes? Are they the best that we can provide them to be the best that they can be? And if you start with that premise, then it changes the picture a little bit. It isn't just about recruiting. It's what can we do with these facilities to help our student-athletes to grow and develop into the best that they can be? I'll give you an example when I got to Grand Valley. Yeah, um, we had a locker room situation in 1996 that uh, I didn't think was very good at all. We had a large high school-like locker room with old metal lockers that you and I had in high school, and you know our football team used it in the fall, the basketball team in the winter, and the baseball team in the spring. And of course, those seasons overlap. It was chaos. Uh, it wasn't good. There was no privacy. So that was something I felt as an athletics director we needed to address. 
Well, our university wasn't going to say, yeah, here you go. Here's uh, several hundred thousand dollars. Go fix it. Uh, we had to go raise the money. We had to commit the energy necessary for success. I remember Brian Kelly and I getting our butts in a car, driving to Detroit, meeting with our alumni in the Detroit area. We went to meet with them. They weren't, they weren't going to drive over two and a half hours to meet with us. We went to meet with them. And uh, we sold 12 lockers that day. We were selling lockers for 1000 apiece back then. We sold 12 lockers that day. We were high-fiving in the parking lot on the way out. And, <laughs> you know, that's how it started. And it was just a little bit of that. Then pretty soon everybody got excited about it. And uh, we had, uh, you know, it was no extravagant locker room. Uh, I remember being in the Woody Hayes complex at Ohio State and seeing their locker room and thinking, holy smokes. And, you know, the Power Five, I mean, they have unbelievable. Ours wasn't extravagant by any means, but we made it nicer for the kids. All right, the kids are there every day. That locker room is where kids go in and out every day. That weight room is a big part of their training to be the best they can be today. No question about that. Uh, so I would look at things like that. I started with things like locker rooms and weight rooms. What are we going to do to help these kids be the best they can be? And then we moved on to uh, uh, skyboxes in the stadium and video boards. And we have all that now. But it started with how can we make our facilities the best they can be for these student-athletes? And the one area in Division Two that I never paid much attention to at all, maybe through a fault, but, you know, you, you read about some of these uh, buildings that the Power Five are building, you know, with the barber shops and the uh, right, right. Ult sauna, you know, the spa, the, spa <laughs> the slides, the name. All right. I, I didn't think in Grand Valley, we hardly spent any money on offices at all. Uh, our coaches have very Spartan offices. And I was of the belief there isn't a kid in America that's going to decide to come to your school based on what the office looks like okay now having said that i will tell you this for the past uh, uh oh probably 15 years uh the football staff at grand valley we do not have offices for our football staff now i share that with some of my peers and they look at me incredulously and that's not a great situation and we've worked at it because you know i, th I think as a, any employee needs a little privacy now and then to speak to a student athlete sure but our coaches we had a building in our north end zone of our stadium they had meeting rooms they have laptops they have iphones and they they made it work i mean we're the winningest football program in NCAA history, not just Division II, NCAA history. And they made it work. And so I share that. Uh, now, again, we've gone to work. We, uh, I think there are good reasons why they should have offices, but it wasn't a priority for uh, me or our coaches. A greater priority was we had to do renovations to our weight room for those 100-some student-athletes. They needed a better weight room, better equipment, and so on. So that was my approach in terms of facilities. Do the best you can with the limited resources that you have, but spend that money on what makes those student athletes better, not what makes my life as AD or my life as a coach cooler, okay? For lack of a better term, let's just use that one. So right. that, that, that right. was my approach with regards to facilities. At this point, you can probably see why Tim Selgo was a successful athletic director. He wasn't afraid to challenge convention and do things in a little bit of an unorthodox way to put the priorities in place to, to build a great program. That's certainly true. But when it came to recruiting, that was one thing that he didn't mess around with. He wanted his coaches to know the latest techniques and have all the resources they could muster to make sure that their coaches had what they needed to go out and recruit and recruit well. There's no question uh, uh, from the uh, day one, uh, my, again, my experience as a college coach was very advantageous to me when it comes to recruiting. I knew how important recruiting was. People talk about it being the lifeblood of, of college athletics, right. uh, but it all starts with getting the best student-athletes for your program you possibly can. Again, I'll go back, uh, share one quick story of my sure, experience. Sure. I take over as the women's basketball coach at Toledo. I was the third head coach in three years. That's not a good situation. Uh, there had been a lot of turnover. 
Consequently, recruiting had suffered, and I inherited a great bunch of kids. I love them to death to this day. Okay, but unfortunately in basketball, not many of them could put the ball in the basket, and that's a problem in that sport. So I had to go recruit better talent. I had to recruit student-athletes that could put the ball in the basket. I needed better talent. And uh, until that year, my first year as head women's basketball coach, I'd never had a losing season in my entire life in anything from Little League on up. Uh, nothing but highly successful season. So it, it, the, the importance of recruiting was uh, certainly placed upon me during that season. So when I became an associate athletics director at Toledo and then carried this over uh, when I became the athletics director at Grand Valley State, so over 28 years of college athletics administration, every year in the summer, early in June, our coaching staff, we had a recruiting retreat for our coaching staff. It was mm -hmm. a day and a half or two days of we're going to schedule, block this on our schedules, we're going to meet in this meeting room, and we're going to talk and train and learn how to become better at recruiting to our institution. It's that simple. You right. need the best talent you possibly can. You have to, my leadership step four, surround yourself with the best people you can. Surround yourself with great people. And that's that's how you're successful in college athletics. We don't we aren't making widgets here, okay? So you surround yourself with the best staff you possibly can, and then you have to go out and get the best student athletes you possibly can. And I just felt it made common sense that you have to work at that. Uh, you know, as you know, Dan, college athletics staffs turn over uh, more than most uh, probably staffs in the world today. Maybe that's not true, I don't know. But in college athletics, you have a lot of turnover. We have people moving up the ladder. You have people getting out of coaching and going into something else. And every year, you've got new uh, coaches, primarily in the assistant coach is ranks. Hopefully, right. you're not, right. you don't have much turnover your head coaches. But you get new coaches that first of all, they may be young, they may be fresh out of college, they may be eager, they may work hard, but they don't really know how to recruit. Their only experience in recruiting is how they were recruited or watching other coaches recruit. And certainly you can learn from veteran coaches who have been through some trial and error and have been through the wars. But I always felt it was important that we work at it. We teach them how to recruit. You know, there's so many facets to recruiting, you ought to go through them all from the actual sales act of recruiting to how to best uh, 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 you know recruit uh, different kids from different areas and different backgrounds and you know every athletic department has new coaches you know if not every year almost every year and those coaches need to know how best to recruit to that institution so we would have a recruiting retreat everywhere and we would bring in people like yourself uh, I'd bring other successful coaches in to speak to our coaches to ask how they built the culture and, 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 and their right. approach to recruiting at, at their successful program. We could learn from them. We're all different, but we can learn from them. And uh, essentially what I wanted, and we had some veteran coaches, and they went through it for a lot of years. And there was repetition at times. And I didn't mind that at all. Nothing wrong with that. You know, we're in sports, for crying out loud. How do you get good in sports? Repetition. <laughs> you practice. So how, right. how you practice it. How do you get good at recruiting? You practice. How do you get good at speaking or writing? You've got to practice it. And so I, I, I felt that that was really important. We scheduled. Now, I, I actually uh, got it down to the first Monday and Tuesday of the month of June every year because the spring sports season in Division Two was pretty much done by then. And uh, it was before camps had started, and, and our spring sports were still going to high school tournaments to recruit. So we do it on Monday and Tuesday. So we did that every year, and uh, I think it paid off. I think we, it, that's the little things that you have to work on and get better at uh, if you want to be successful in college athletics. It's not just we have a great school and we got this great facility. As you know, it's people selling people. It still comes down to that coach selling that kid on their program and their institution, and uh, uh, that's the work that goes into to, to being good at that. Right, right. Um, a couple more things I want to ask about uh, when it comes to the uh, the book. Uh, you you talk about in the, your leadership step five, uh, you know, it, kind of two things that tie together: uh, developing your team and then patience being a virtue, and how those two 
tie together and I guess I'm, I'm speaking more to get your observations about this culture in coaching which is I gotta I gotta be successful now I have to do this now and that comes as a motivator for you know from the coach I think they feel that pressure then uh, it also is increasingly coming from athletic directors and administrations that you know certainly at a higher level you're a football coach you've got three years maybe four but three we really got to see some turnaround or else we have to make a change same thing in basketball and that is starting to filter down i've observed into certainly division two but even division three and aia uh where you know boosters are becoming more involved and and you know hey if you want me to keep donating we got to do something about this coach because they're not winning enough and so you have this culture of of you know competition and and you got to be the best and certainly there's nothing wrong with that but you know you talked about again developing the team and and tying that in with patience i would love for you to sort of speak to that and, and for the coach that is feeling pressure right now to be good right now and maybe cut corners to get there what would you say to him or her have the courage have the courage to stick to your plan have discipline and uh, uh, don't let those outside influences affect you now i would i would share that with athletic directors as well uh, i agree with you i think it's absolutely absurd at the power five level that they expect football coaches to have things turned around by year three uh, that's absurd because again i'm going to go back to our previous conversation on recruiting Rarely is a recruiting class going to make an impact in year one. Rarely. The Fab Five at Michigan 25 years ago was an anomaly. And in basketball, perhaps quicker, but certainly not in football. Uh, it takes time. And patience is a key. And there's so little of it today, Dan, it drives me crazy. I just can't understand it. I, I, you know, uh, the noise out there is louder than ever. The noise being on social media and fans wanting to complain. They, everybody wants everything now today. Technology has caused us all to be generally more impatient. Mm -hmm. But when it comes yep. to college athletics, as an athletics director, as a leader, you have to fight that. You've got to fight that. You've got to be tough enough and courageous enough to hang through that because there's so many great coaches out there that if it would have been three years and done, it never would have happened. Mike Krzyzewski is a great example of any right. of the Do a little Google search on the story of Mike Krzyzewski, the winningest coach of all times in men's basketball in Division I, one of the greatest coaches ever to walk the earth. If uh, uh, Tom Butters, I believe, was the AD at the time, if he didn't have the guts to hang with him uh, uh, through some uh, tough early struggles, you know, it never would have happened. Uh, I, I, I'm amazed sometimes at, at uh, and I think some of it is uh, prompted by the media and fans' access to leadership that, oh man, if we're not getting it turned around right away, it'll never happen. Uh, let me give you another example, I think, for everybody. Um, you know, uh, and, and by the way, you know, at the Division II level, one of the ways we combated that is we, we have, we, at Grand Valley, we gave all of our new head coaches multi-year contracts, either a three or four-year contract, okay? Now, that right. contract included a buyout clause. And my first president at Grand Valley, Don Lubbers, and I tell this story in my book, uh, we had a discussion, how long should we have a buyout clause in a Division II coach's contract? And we determined that five years was the right number. Because in Don Lubbers' words, we want our coaches to build programs, but we don't want to chain them to our institution. I mean, if there's better opportunities out there, like Brian Kelly is now the head coach at Notre Dame, God bless him. You know, right, we'll help right. you get there. But we we didn't, I didn't want Grand Valley to be a stepping stone. It could easily become a stepping stone school, and I don't think that's the reason we exist. I didn't want those student athletes to go through three coaches in three years like my kids did when I was the head women's basketball coach at Toledo. So contractually, you can tie them in with a buyout clause in there, and now it's, of course, at the Power Five level, it doesn't matter. They get paid so much to walk away that it, it, it almost is irrelevant. Um, but I think that it's important that as the leader, you have to take some steps to have the courage with the people you hire that you've got to give them time. That's a key there. And sooner or later, if you keep having turnover, 
uh, and you're not making the right hires, they're going to start looking at you and say, all right, who are you hiring? Who's doing the hiring <laughs> right, here? Right, so that's right. a key. And that's, and that's a whole other chapter in my book, the hiring process. But it's the most important thing a leader does. But uh, I'll get back. I'm going to give you an example, I think, Dan, that does, says it the best. Gary Pinkle was our head coach at the University of Toledo from, I think, 1991, I think, to 2002, 2003. He goes to the University of Missouri, and he makes Missouri uh, a football uh, huge success story in college football. They join the SEC, and his first three years in the SEC, he wins the SEC East twice, Okay. Uh, I think Gary Pinkle is one of the best college football coaches ever, and he's going to be in the college football uh, coaching Hall of Fame. There's no question about it. But he's at Toledo. He was our third head coach in three years. Uh, uh, Nick Saban had come in. Nick uh, was tremendous. Uh, Toledo was his first head coaching job. He went 9-2 and two as the uh, uh, Mid-America Conference co-champs, and Bill Belichick hired Nick as the defensive coordinator for the Cleveland Browns. Uh, again, that story is in my book. I won't elaborate on that. I have unbelievably great respect for Nick Saban. He's one of the best teachers of his sport out there. And uh, I don't think people view the good coaches out there as teachers. But, man, the best out there can really teach their sport. And we were fortunate to hire Gary Pinkle after Nick. And Nick highly recommended him. And I paid attention to that. I thought that was important. And Gary Pinkle can really teach the sport of football. He can really teach quarterbacks. Uh, Gary Pinkle is one of the best in college football ever at grooming and mentoring and developing quarterbacks. If you look at the who, uh, list of quarterbacks he's had over the years, it's a who's who uh, of, of, of NFL guys. Okay, So he goes to Missouri from Toledo. That, that's all a great success story. But what people forget is his first year at Toledo, he's 5-5-1. Five, five and one. He's the uh, third head coach in three years. The next year, we would go eight and three. We had a, a couple of pretty good players, a good running back. We go eight and three. And then the following year, we went four and seven. His third year, we had that dip. You know, right. and everybody today, oh my gosh, things are, you know, the wheels are falling off. No, it's not. At that year, we did not have a very good senior class. They weren't very good. They weren't talented. I didn't think they were very good leaders. And Pinkle had to live with that. That's the result of coaching turnover. And, and when you have coaching turnover, you're not going to have a good recruiting class in year one. It's almost inevitable. You're not going to have a good recruiting class in year one. It takes some time. And, and Gary had to live with that. So in really the fifth year of uh, coaching transition and instability at Toledo, that's the senior class he had. That's the year we went four and seven. The next year, now you could see his plan starting to develop. His, he had his players in place in year four. They were buying into what he was teaching, and we went 6-4-1. and one. Now, it should have been 7-3-1. and one. On the very last play of the season, Charlie Batch at Eastern Michigan, who played in the NFL, right. rolled out to his left, threw back behind him a wounded duck that somehow neither defensive back for Toledo got a hand on, and they caught it in the back of the end zone to win the game on the last play as, as time ran out. So we were 6-4-1, but we should have been 7-3-1, okay? So Gary came back in year five, and I remember him telling me going into that year, we're doing things the right way. We're doing it the right way. I'm not going to change. So they made, they tinkered. They, they made some slight changes like every, every good leader should. Uh, I remember he did more running with his team. He thought uh, cardiovascularly they needed more running, and he did more uh, with that team. And when, the next year, we go 12-0-1. We win the Mid-American Conference. We won the Vegas Bowl. And, uh, uh, and boom, his career takes off. But it wasn't until year five that he had a Hall of Fame uh, record season. And it took time. You have to be able to recognize when the process is in place. And as any leader, it takes time. You've got to have patience. And if there's any message whatsoever I can give to college athletics leaders out there is that you have to have the courage to fight the impatience. And, and I see it in coaches, Dan. They all want these freshmen to be really good right away. And it's not going to happen. I don't care what uh, club sport they played on, I don't care how much good competition they played in high school, it's a different level, and it's going to take some time. And I would implore coaches, say, hey, hang with that kid. He or she may not do much for you to their junior and senior year, 
but uh, they got some potential. And so I think that's a huge key to leadership of college athletics, specifically in recruiting. It takes time to get your program in place. Right. Last thing I want to cover, uh, while we still have some time here, is as you in the book, um, there was one little uh, section that that kind of stood out to me uh, when uh, when you talk to the, the reader uh, about kind of when the when bad stuff happens, and yeah. you know that could be anything from you know a player gets in trouble and it's made public to behind the scenes something internally is happening with your staff. Bad stuff is going to happen. If you're a college coach or college AD, you're dealing with humans and imperfections, sure. and so that's yeah. going to happen. And you have some terrific advice, uh, which I'll let the, you know, when people order the book, they can read it. Um, but one of the things that stood out to me, and you didn't spend a lot of time in the book, but I'd love to have you kind of expand on it uh, as we close out the conversation, and that is the importance of relationships. Uh, the coach that comes in, maybe new school, new program, and doesn't build a relationship with the people on campus that they may not, that coach may not immediately see as being advantageous to them, maybe over on the academic side or just in the higher levels of administration. Uh, the coach that basically takes the attitude of, well, I'm here to coach and I'm just going to be coaching this team and I'm not really going to invest in other people around campus. And what I heard or I read uh, and kind of heard you saying through what you wrote is that is exactly the wrong way to approach it. And the, the, the relationships that you build, you know, within your program, within your the administration, the athletic department, with on the, within the campus community that you're at are really an essential part of success. And I'm just, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your observations there and maybe some coaches or situations where that didn't happen and it ended up hurting that program as well as you know the the benefit of it and and what coaches when they did that saw as a result in a positive way yeah well first of all you know when bad stuff happens you know you're on a college campus you're dealing with 18 to 22 year olds <laughs> they're gonna mess up at times okay uh i think we have great kids at grand valley uh i think division two overall we have great kids i think you have great kids in division one uh, but, you know, they're not all going to be Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and, and act the way you want them to act. Uh, everybody was that age at one time or another. So I think that's something that leaders need to understand. You're dealing with 18 to 22-year-olds. And when bad things happen, you, uh, you know, unless it's uh, uh, atrociously bad, you've got to be able to use most of them as a teaching moment. And, and I always felt almost every kid deserves a second chance. Uh, there's another area I think we're getting a little bit too impatient with young kids. Now, again, there, there are certain uh, things that take place that are atrocious and you, you can't uh, put up with. But there's a lot of things a college kid does that uh, you must use at teaching moments. That's what you're there for as a leader. They're there to come to college to learn. It's your job to teach. So use them as teaching moments. The other thing I would tell you, uh, Dan, about any of those types of situations, uh, you have to have your poise and you must have maturity. Two things that I think are in short supply in leadership today. People, uh, maturity is the most underrated factor in hiring coaches today. And I looked for that in every coach I hired. And that 23-year-old fresh out of college kid might be more mature than the 38-year-old. Okay, and I see examples, I mean, uh, in, in college coaching all the time. And I want to say, come on, you know, act more maturely. You're a grown-up. You're on the bench. You know, let's start, I have some maturity about you. You know, in politics, we see examples of immaturity all the time. It's, it's, it's almost pathetic. But we're in college coaching. We're to be role models. We're to be mentors to these young kids. You must have maturity. And then, you know, when things happen on a college campus, as you said, you know, it, you're, you represent the institution. You know, you're representing everybody at the institution from the president on down through the athletic department, through the administration, through the coaching staff, through your fellow students. When you right. wear that jersey, uh, there's a higher expectation. And you've got to, uh, uh, you know, you may be uh, under the spotlight 
uh, more because you're a student athlete or a coach or an administrator, so be it. You got to live with that. And that, uh, you know, what comes with the glory, you've got to deal with the fact that you're held to a higher standard. Uh, I always worked hard. I, I've always felt that an athletics department is just part of the institution. Sometimes we can be made out to be uh, too big. Uh, athletics gets a lot of visibility, a lot of attention, and we the leaders have to be careful of that. We have to know our place. We're just a part of the institution. Higher education exists uh, as that, to educate these young people. And athletics might get a lot of attention, but it's only a part of it. I always encouraged our coaches, uh, and I as the athletic director tried to lead the way, to be a part of other things on campus and to go to other meetings and groundbreaking ceremonies and I walked in at cap and gown at convocation mm -hmm. and uh, that sort of thing because I, I, I wanted to be a part I wanted to be more than just athletics. I wanted the, the things that I did as an athletics director to transcend athletics and to do that you do have to develop relationships throughout campus. You know, that's what makes being an athletics director a tough job, Dan. You've got a lot of constituents to deal with. You know, right. in my case, I was in Division II. We had a staff of about 60. That's a lot. We had 550 student-athletes that I was directly responsible for. That's a lot. That's over 600 people under your watch. Plus, you've got all your external constituents that support the program. Plus, you've got all the faculty and staff on campus. Plus, you have all the people in the university. Uh, my leadership step number five, you, you've made a nice segue into that. Earn the trust from those you report to and from those who report to you. You know, as an athletic director, I was in middle management. I had people above me that I had to report to that I had to earn their trust. And I had people below me. Uh, student athletes and coaches and staff that I had to earn their trust. So it's all about earning trust. And how do you earn trust from people? You develop a relationship with them. You're, you can be honest, and but you've got to develop a relationship. Uh, Brian Kelly was a great example. Uh, Brian Kelly uh, had relationships throughout our campus. You know, he's a Division II head coach. And a Division II head coach, you better uh, have good relationships with the financial aid office, right? Well, <laughs> right. Uh, one of the assistants over there was his now wife, Pocky Kelly. Pocky worked in financial <laughs> aid when Brian was a young coach at Grand Valley, okay? You better have good relations with the people in admissions and the dean of students office and all the folks in student life. And besides just the academic, you don't interfere. You don't, you know, interfere with the academics that... But it certainly helps to have good relationships with them. Right. Uh, right. I was just at a school. One last quick story. I'm very. Uh, I want to commend the, this coaching staff. Lenore Ryan University is a Division II school in Hickory, North Carolina. Their athletics director Kim Pate is doing a great job there. She just finished year one there, and she's building a, I think, a, a very successful athletics program there. They have their school led by their provost and president has a workshop every year in the middle of May for the faculty and staff on campus. A workshop to how to get better at Lenore Ryan University. And she has all of her coaches going to this workshop. And the other folks on campus that I met with were talking about that. And for the first time in a long time, the whole athletics coaching staff is going to be there. They were fired up about that. That's the kind of thing you need to do. And I commended those coaches. That's committing the energy necessary for success. That's everybody right. on campus working together. And whether it's a campus of higher education, whether it's a company or an organization, that's what I'm talking about. Everybody needs to get on the same wavelength, the same page. So as a leader, you've got to earn the trust of those who re you report to and you have to earn the trust of those below you. And you do that by working at developing relationships. So thanks for asking me that question. Yeah, well, and, and I don't want coaches to misunderstand either. You are not suggesting that uh, they find their future spouse in financial aid <laughs> at, on campus. That's, let's just get that out of the way now. That's not one of the, the uh, that's not step six in the, uh. in the book, uh, Anchor Up by Tim Selgo. But I did want to. I actually wanted to end it uh, with this because there's so much. And the reason I loved reading through the book is that, as I said earlier, there are so many times where coaches will take good leadership business books or good just general leadership books and translate it and apply it to their coaching career and with their team. And the great thing about your book is that it's the same 
lessons that were proven on a college campus that are it's really written from the AD and coach's perspective to other athletic directors and coaches. So there's no translation needed. This is just real usable, real world stuff that here's how we built a successful program. So I want to end it with this. I want to, the last question is going to be if you have a coach sitting in front of you, which in this you do, you're in their ear right now, what could you tell that coach, whether they've been coaching for 20 years or it's brand new, they're just three months on the job, first coaching job, give me the, the key one thing that you would tell them if they came up to you and said, Mr. Selgo, tell me what I need to do to be successful as a college coach. What is What does it boil down to? What's the one most important thing? How would you answer that? Well, thank you for leading me into that. My leadership step four, uh, which I passed over uh, in our discussion is surround yourself with good people. Um, uh, again, this is college athletics. We're not making widgets. Uh, to be successful in college athletics, it's all about people. And funny that you should ask because two days ago, I had this same discussion with a brand new uh, head women's basketball coach in Division II that's under the age of 30. She's got great potential. And, but she just got named the head coach. Here it is, uh, end of April, early May, and school is about to end uh, with final exams next week. So she asked me that same question. The two things I said to her, one, develop a relationship with those student athletes you have in the program as much as you possibly can during the uh, next week that you have still on campus and understanding they're in exams and they're gonna be stressed out and working at that. And two, stay in close contact with those student athletes returning into program throughout the summer. You know, we've got so many ways today that you can stay in close contact with student athletes. You can have a Skype call with them every week. You can just chat with them, get to know them, learn to know your players beyond their skill and talent and the athletic uh, world. Learn and, and know them and develop relationships with them. And, and those don't always go perfectly well. It's a teacher-student relationship. They're not intended to go perfectly well. But if you don't work at that relationship, that's where it all starts. So with a new coach, it starts with the players in your program. And uh, for me, when I took over as head women's basketball coach in Toledo, I shared that story. We weren't real good, but you know what? Those were the players I had. I wasn't interested in running kids off. They were promised a, a, a chance to play basketball and be a student at the University of Toledo. I had to make the best of it. I had to make them the best they could possibly be. And don't get hung up on wins and losses as a result. Focus on the process. The second thing, besides... Develop a relationship with your current student athletes. I told this coach, recruit, recruit, recruit. Get out there and start recruiting. Uh, get out there and find players. And it's uh, something you can never let up on. Uh, as I finished my time as athletics director at Grand Valley, uh, I said to our coaches, never get lazy in recruiting. You must continue to recruit, continue to commit the energy necessary for success. Um, and find the best talent you possibly can. If you want to be successful in college athletics and things are going to happen, some years that recruiting class may not be as good as you had hoped from injuries or whatnot, uh, but if you stay with it, you have a chance to sustain success. Uh, so it all comes back to that. Surround yourself with the best people you possibly can if you want to be successful in college athletics. Well, Coach, all I can tell you is that if you liked that episode and you liked the conversation with Tim Selgo, you have got to get his book, Anchor Up, because there is so much stuff that we didn't even get a chance to ask him about that he talks about in detail in the book about, and it is all geared towards making your program, your athletic department, your coaching career better. So we really encourage you to add that book to your bookshelf in your library in your office. Uh, you can go to the show notes. We have the link to buy the book there or just find it on any online resource that you love to use. It is a great one. We want to thank you for listening to the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. You can go to dantutor.com for, of course, more free resources and information on what we do and how we help coaches become better recruiters. But until next time, tell your friends, keep on listening, subscribe to the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. We'll see you next time, Coach. Thank you.